Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Policing is often in one's DNA, and at any time it's a huge decision to step away from it. But in Rory's case, the decision, albeit a difficult one, saw him take up a position where he could continue to make a real difference to community safety right from within the heart of British government, working within the team of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. In this second part of Rory and I's chat, we discuss this transition from frontline policing to entering the door at number 10 and the very challenges that British policing faces today and how Rory hopes to continue making a difference with the establishment of the Public Safety Foundation. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Well, it's and, and, and we kind of lead in, this is sort of, 2016 where you'd kind of made this decision um or the latter part of 15 into 16 made this decision that maybe there were greener pastures outside of law enforcement outside of the met and fast forwarding the clock to april 2016 you're involved in a foot chase as you mentioned a bit earlier on the podcast with a chap that was armed with a firearm which then gave you the sudden realization that the, th the thoughts and feelings that you'd had sometime prior in terms of the the risks to you as an individual, the ramifications of somebody getting hurt in a tussle really did come to the fore. But on this particular occasion, it was your own safety and realisation that at any one moment, 
life can be taken away from you um, if somebody that you're pursuing chooses to take that abhorrent decision. So could you talk us through that incident, which kind of was a bit of a catalyst for your kind of drawing a curtain on policing and with the Met? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose I'd say I, I it was just to say I, I was less I was less um, I it was much less about thinking there were greener pastures elsewhere as a reason to go it was much more i can't keep doing this because something really bad is going to happen was 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 more the sense but this sort of um the incident we're going to talk about i think certainly sealed the if there'd been any doubt in my mind and i, I don't think there had been as i say the, the the thoughts were all there and the the evidence at least in my mind was all there and so i don't know it's half for you know and, but i'd not let it stop me do my job and so you know i was still out hunting for burglars or hunting for whoever it might be that was wanted or whatever it might be at any time and so it was i think it was april it was um we'd done a one of these funny 7 p.m to 5 a.m shifts um that we did on a on a sort of friday saturday type night it's a yucky shift and time. um yeah i mean I, interestingly enough I, I always loved it from the fact that it was quite good for um you know getting your your overnight burglars or your overnight car criminals or your overnight you know catching your catching your crooks at two three four in the morning it was a cracking shift for that and so you know in, in a sense this was no different it was about half four in the morning and we were as i say off at five so we were sort of toodling back towards um the nick uh in a in a funny little Vauxhall Corsa, I think we were in a that sort of you know just a conventional little one liter Vauxhall Corsa, and we got to a I think we got to a set of traffic lights, and I um I was looking up the road and I saw two lads run across the road, and, and as they sort of ran across the road, they were looking over their shoulder, and I just thought, what are they what have, what are they running from? Was my you know just that instinctive yeah, sort gut of feeling gut feeling right, and just experience of having seen people who've done something and how they tend to run off afterwards with half an eye over their shoulder so they and they weren't running for a bus they weren't running for the tube or anything you know it was it was four in the morning what are they running from and stuff so off we went after them and um as we pulled up into this uh, little car park on this estate um and because it was just a rubbish little course that they they had no i don't think they had much inkling that the police were about to jump out um and so as we pulled up i jumped out of the seat and i I shouted police stop or stop police I forget now what I said but um, essentially words to that effect and I there were two of them two sort of lads um, and I locked my eyes on the further chap who you know I always think if I can control the one who's further away then the one who's nearer will be will get you know we'll just sort of read the room a bit and so I had my eyes on the further chap and um, there was panic you know you could, I could see in that like second right where he was clocking the fact that yeah I don't know, we we were old Bill, you could see like utter panic and I thought, oh, bloody hell, this is something's gonna go off here. And this was all like just in an instant, right? You're just like, this is we're either gonna have an absolute bundle or it's gonna be a a, a chase. Um and yeah, within I don't know, another split second he's on his toes running and um off I go after him, as you know, that's what the job is, right? Like I'm not I'm not here not to catch criminals. <laughs> like I'm you know, I'm here to catch people who are up to no good and the fact that you've run off um, and had such a look of panic in your eyes. I think, on top of everything else I've observed, um, you are definitely, um, you know, the the person I should be stopping and searching at, you know, half four in the morning on a on a Sunday, early Sunday morning. Um, and so we started the chase. Um, and as I, I think I started to put up on the radio something like, you know, chasing suspects and whatever. And then I just heard this bang. And I remember, I remember hearing the bang. And I was looking, I was trying to find the name of the block. I don't know why I. 
it's my perfectionist tendencies of wanting to know precisely where I was. <laughs> um, so I was looking up at the, bu- at, the, the, at the block to try and see the name, because I knew where the name of the block was, and they're funny, name, funny names anyway. The, the, so I was looking up for the name of this block, and I just couldn't see it as I was running after him. And um, I heard this bang, and my first thought was, bloody hell, we're just setting off fireworks. At, you know, someone throwing a firework at us, what's going on? Um, and then as my eyes obviously turned quite naturally back to him, darted back to him in fact um i saw in his hand i saw the i saw the blooming gun in his hand uh and it was it was it was like an old sort of revolver looking you know kind of i don't know something from something from world war one to be honest was was how it sort of looked um but a gun nonetheless and i certainly i certainly didn't think it was any less dangerous for for being a bit dated um <laughs> and uh, and again so all of, all of a sudden it was like well that, that clearly wasn't a firework clearly that was a gun um and a gun shot at that and as his arms swung sort of back away from me back um round to the front of him I sort of thought, bloody hell, I've picked one here. You know, you just you just sort of go, you know, I'm on, you know, the adrenaline's dumping even more than it was, and so I, I keep after him, and we run round the block. And as we go round the block, I suddenly realise I'm gaining on him, which, from my own experience, I tend not initially to gain on suspects, right? Like t- generally, in the first bit of a fo- for me at least, as in the first bit of a foot chase, they they make more progress than I do because I've got a bloody boots and vest and whatever else I've got on um, but I was gaining on him and I thought bloody hell this chap might not be that fit which I thought happy days um, and then I suddenly realised he was slowing down he, he, it wasn't that I was gaining on him because he was unfit or I was super athletic at that moment it was it was that he was stopping he was slowing down um, and then I, I, I'll always sort of remember this little dance he almost did on the spot I don't, you know, and whether he actually did a dart, you know, I don't, I don't think he was sort of busting any moves, but he, he, he sort of, you know, a bit like if you were treading on hot coals, right? You'd be hopping around with your feet a bit. It was a bit like that, as though he was trying to, he was trying to figure out what to do. He was thinking, what shall I, do? you know? And and as I started to process what was rapidly approaching, um, I thought to myself, fucking hell, he's going to turn around and have another go, isn't he? So I, so I then slammed my own sort of metaphorical brakes on. Um, and I'm I'm scanning around. I'm thinking, right, I need to find somewhere to bloody hide. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I realise, you know, you know, I've got a met vest on that will that will sort of stop, you know, most handgun bullets to a reasonable degree, but it only covers a bit of me. <laughs> you know, it might cover might cover quite a bit of me, but it doesn't cover all of me. Um, and I remember just sort of thinking, skip. I had this sudden memory of police training where they said, oh, if you're ever in a firearms job, look for a skip. Look for a skip, but make sure it's full of rubble, was, I think, the extent of some of the, the training. So I thought, is there a fucking skip? This estate, by the way, had never looked so clean, tidy, immaculate. There was no, there were no skips. There was no, not so much as a crisp wrapper or a, or, a, or a sort of, you know, anything to hide behind. Um, and on my left was a, a, a sort of front doors into a block of flats, and they... They were all, for the most part, like fairly sort of flush with the building yeah. line. So it wasn't even like I could duck in a in a doorway. So I'm sort of like, bloody hell, what's going on? So as I as I'm sort of trying to find somewhere to bloody hide, um, he thankfully stops um, sort of dancing and starts moving again. Wow. Which I thought, oh, phew, bloody hell. Thank God he's he's thought better of it. Um, thank God, because uh, at that point I was even close. I mean, when he'd first shot, I, I wasn't far from him. This time I'd have been even closer. So um, 
you know, who knows? But so he then kept going. By this point, obviously, my brain was catching up with events. And I was like, right, hang back a bit, Rory. You know, keep on him, but hang back, you know. You, you know, you, you know the area well enough that you know that, like, you know where he's likely to be run into from and all the rest of it. So so I sort of held back a bit and we went back out onto the main street and then we ran along the street a bit and he crossed the road and I sort of kept my distance a bit, still shouting after him a bit. And then he vaulted one little wall and I thought, yeah, I can get over that, no problem. Then he went over a proper sort of six-foot wall and I thought, do I want to go over that? So as I ran towards it, I finally the brain sort of went, hmm... So say you go over that wall now, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, uh, how is that going to end? Yeah, and, and, especially if he's on the other know, side. Fortunately, well, yeah, and unfortunately, you know, there was enough time, as it were, from the start of the incident to that moment for, you know, the training one does have and the just common sense, if you will, that one has, hopefully, in those moments to, to sort of process that actually that, that would be a bad decision to go over that wall. Um, and so I sort of stopped and I could just hear him smashing through people's back gardens. And and I remember shouting after him, you know, come, I was completely mad, really. I was like, come back, <laughs> you know, sort of, police, come back, stop where you are, you're surrounded, you know, that sort of. I don't think I went to the extremes of, you know, pretending to make the sound of a police dog or something you know as, as some people do um but i certainly did my best to try and get obviously he was he was of one mind at that point of just getting away um and so uh yeah and, and obviously by this point i've obviously put up shots fired and you know people are starting to sort of make their way and um and it was all sort of you know fine at that moment it was all sort of like you know crikey chased a gunman been shot at that's quite like God, that's quite a shift um and thankfully i've not gone over the wall and ended up you know sort of probably seriously injured or something um and so yeah at that point things were okay and then probably as the adrenaline started to wear off and as as i was trying to get a containment in you know and for various reasons i think there ended up being a bit of a confusion where um you know, a CCTV operator, I think, down in Brixton was like, oh, I can see him on CCTV. And I thought, bloody hell, I don't know there's any cameras up here. You know, normally when you ask for CCTV, it's like, no, there's no CCTV. And you're, you're sort of like, bloody hell, on this occasion there is. And he's made it. And I just could. Anyway, so I ended up using my Emma button to try and explain, you know, can we just get this containment on because he's in these back gardens. And as it transpired after... He was literally smashing through gardens. I think he was, um, I think he was ditching stuff, probably left, right, and centre. Um, and I think uh, he was, yeah, he ended up like waking up a lot of people in their back gardens, going, "Let me in your house." And by this point, I think he was probably covered in blood and probably looking a bit worse for wear. Um, and eventually, I think some, you know, so I think there were a string of nine 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 calls probably that came in from people saying they were being burgled, probably. Um, and then eventually, I think someone let him in. I mean, I don't know, mind boggles, right? But hey ho, someone lets him in, and I think he made his escape before the containment went on. And then my understanding is, the f- was it the the same day he left the country? I think I think he left the country the same. Oh day. really? Um, yeah, so he slipped the containment. I think he either left the country the same day or the next day. Uh, um, obviously, didn't know any of this at the time. Um, but yeah, he, he left the country, um, and and so I'm stood at this wall, right? And armed officers are turning up, and the containment's still on, or at least it's on. So we don't know that he's slipped it. So everyone's doing everything they can to catch him. And it was at this point that I think, as the as the sort of adrenaline almost wore off, as the sort of low 
and it was just such a you know it was such a almost high to then such a low um that i think i i think i just obviously was probably quite shocked and shaken by it and um i remember having i've never been one to have panic attacks and i found myself in the back of um in the back of one of the detectives cars the trident i think reactive team and i was put they sat me or it was one of the patrol cars i think actually i was in the back of one of their cars anyway and i just remember the car just getting smaller and smaller i mean obviously it wasn't right like obviously the car was the same size but it was I'd, honestly i i felt like i was suffocating in that car um so i just sort of had to sh- jump out of it um and then um essentially just ended up going through the 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 inevitable sort of follow-on right of like eventually being carted off for interviews and all the rest of it but there was one moment that sticks with me and it was um it was a firearms sergeant a trojan sergeant um and he shouted he bellowed across the road from um where he was to where these detectives were he bellowed across and it was like make sure you take care of him or it was it was you know he needs he needs and i i my recollection is now that he said something like he needs Pim or he needs um, essentially the debrief, right? He needs to be sort of taken care of. Um, which in that moment of just having had a mega panic attack, I was like, God, someone knows what they're doing. That's good. You know, I just thought, oh, good. I'll hang on to that. Um, well, it's also it's, it's and a sense we of went, reassurance. Yeah. That you, you know, what you're going through mm. is kind of someone mm. has realized that it's really, really quite serious. Right. Because I didn't, I don't think even, even at that time, I didn't realise how much of an impact it was going to have. And so um, we fast forward to the Nick uh, back in Brixton. And um, I just remember a lot of the time being on my own, actually. I remember just being put in a room on my own, um, which, I, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, a psychologist or, or, or in any way um, any of those things. But I just remember that not being a good thing. Um, and, you know, I remember being sat in one of the rooms on the first floor at Brixton and it was, it was pretty quiet in there, right? In this room, just on your own. And I remember there being a TV on, oh, I need to just put something on the telly. I don't care what, right? I watch, I watch bloody loose women at this point. I'm really not, I watch anything, right? Just to have something going on. Um, well, I couldn't even get the bloody TV to work. There was nothing on it. Um, and then by this point, it's like seven a.m. I've not eaten since like the night before, so I'm like. But what's it, what's the idea? To, what's the idea behind isolating mm. you in a room? Have you got to be interviewed because you've been involved in a critical incident? Well, I th- so so I th- I think it is probably based on the idea of you know me not conferring with. Um, Certainly, my the partner I was with, the, the the PC I was with, they obviously didn't want us talking to each other, but they they didn't even let us really say hello to each other or to check each other over. Um, but just, I and, suppose, and, just and, a very quick question yeah. here, because I suppose I'm just wanting to understand the context of this. Is that if you're in, if if I, if I'm a firearms officer and you know if I'm involved in a in in a police shooting and I and I'm and I make the decision because the threat exists to discharge my firearm and someone is seriously injured or killed then I, I can understand the context around separating individuals to make sure stories are independent and they're not changed or modified. You know, it's, it's a safeguarding measure in terms of making sure the integrity of the investigation is maintained. But you were going after, you were involved in a foot chase with a couple of individuals. One was carrying a firearm who shoots at you. I suppose I'm struggling with the concept that 
you're being interviewed and separated as if you've done something wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suspect the logic for them was we want to get his sort of proper first account on video without him having, without anyone being able to allege that I've like, I don't know, concocted something with my fellow officer. I don't know. I, I, I can only right, assume okay. that was the rationale. Mm, okay, fair enough. Um, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't think they, they certainly weren't treating me as a suspect, but I certainly didn't feel as though... Um, well, the optics aren't great, though. Feel, you know, it's... No, the optics aren't great, and it didn't feel great, because you're then left to your own brain's kind of whirrings and whatever else. And, and you know, we go into interview, I do the video interview with them. Um, bearing in mind, I literally, I'd, 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 I'd gone and, I'd, I'd managed to get two Kit Kats out of a vending machine, so I was running on fumes at this point. Um, but I do the video interview, and halfway through, or thereabouts, the video interview... I remember breaking down into sobbing tears because I had this sudden realisation as I was recalling it to them that after hearing that gunshot, I hadn't looked around to check on my colleague. So I'd, I, I literally hadn't done, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been chasing him, I'd heard the gunshot, I kept after him and it just didn't occur to me. You know, it just didn't occur to me and I just remember feeling enormous guilt at that, which... Again, you know, being kept on your own as opposed to having that chance in in the immediate aftermath to properly sort of dust each other off. But anyway, so so that was all quite um, eventful. And then did that. And then a few days later, we had an um, identity parade and stuff. So that was good because he left DNA. So they were able to, I think, get some photos together of, of who's who. Um, and then um, as, 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 as we sort of went home, or just before we went home, I remember... Um, I remember being asked, had I done the work return? <laughs> God. Honestly. Really? I remember. I remember being asked, had I done, have you done the work return? Mm. Are you for real? Mm. Yeah. Have, I, have I done the work return? Yeah. I've just been fucking shot at. And you're asking me if I've done the work return. Anyway, and ended up um, going home. And as, 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 I, um, as, I, as I walked home um, from the the ultimate nick I worked out of. Um, as I walked home, I, I popped into Sainsbury's and I, God, I was not right. I was like half in tears in Sainsbury's just thinking, God, nobody in here wants to kill me. Everyone's so lovely. Nobody wants to kill me. I mean, it was a, it was a, honestly, Oliver, it was a, it was not, I don't think of myself as a sort of um, particularly lacking in resilience person. I don't think of myself um you know, in any of those sort of negative uh, like ways, but but it was profound what an effect it had. And I, I remember sort of dropping in on my little sister. She lived nearby and she just didn't know what to say, right? Like, what do you say to your brother who's just had this happen? Like, what do you say? Um, and then I remember going home uh, and I remember going to sleep eventually. And then I remember waking up the next morning and just feeling completely numb. Com like completely numb and, and again these are all these are not things I was used to ever feeling but I felt completely numb and I remember like thinking I need to feel something this isn't right so I googled um funny videos right like YouTube let's get some I don't know Frankie Boyle or let's get some Jimmy Carr or whatever and find some like comedian just to make me laugh and none of it none of it worked and then I thought well maybe I need to figure out how I should feel so I remember googling like how 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 should you feel after you've been shot at, right? Or after police shooting or something? And of course, it was all about 
the police shooting other people. None of it was anything to do with none of it was anything to do with the police. And so that was all a bit fruitless. And um I, I honestly that that day was rough and I remember the, the borough commander phoned me that morning and I could barely speak. I sort of just I said whatever I needed to say just to get rid of him. So I was just like monosyllabic, right? He was like, how are you? Yeah, fine, 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 sir. Yeah, fine, 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 fine. Just like fuck off, basically. You know, fine, fine, fine. Um, and just to get rid of it, right? I didn't know how to deal with it. And and over the next few hours, um, it just became clear that the things were not right at all. And so then I I reached out to one of the DCIs who was, who was very good um, and just said, I need some help here. Um and a chief inspector came and uh, took me off for breakfast, and you know that all just felt very strange too. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't like there there weren't people around, but it was as though nobody really knew what what to yeah, do. Yeah, and, that, and that, I think that's where the challenges are because you know you it's because I think we're we, you know we're, we're okay at saying well we're not okay, but I, I'm going to say we can say are you okay but that we're not we're not good at answer if, if someone comes back in the negative we don't know then how to respond to that that's the key you know we're, we're very good at passing in the corridor going hey going and if someone says actually i'm not great you go oh shit now what do i do you know like i've opened a can of worms so I, we're always i think senior managers have always been a bit cautious and and you just treaded very carefully to that line and and almost I don't know, just stumbled around being almost awkward in trying to help people. Yeah, and 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 I think, um, again, you know, look, I'd never had any input on it as a PC for my role, and so I don't imagine anyone above me in the organisation had ever really had an input on it either. And fast forward a bit further, and I um, I was like, right, I it's no good me being by this point, and this is where it's relevant again of, you know, I, I was... You know, I'd had a breakup in the relationship, so like my my sort of then girlfriend was no longer my girlfriend, so I didn't have that sort of presence around me. And I remember thinking, I you know, I'm going to go and see my other sister. I'll hop on a train and I'll go and see my other sister. So I um I remember being at Clapham Junction train station, and I remember being stood on the platform, and I remember thinking to myself, this is what people feel when they do stupid stuff. This is this is what people feel when they jump in front of a freaking train. And I remember finding that thought very sort of scary. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't class it as like a suicidal thought. I wasn't thinking about doing it myself, but I was, I was like, God, I can see for the first time in my life, I could sort of feel, I felt so little almost that, that I could sort of see how people could do something without any regard to the kind of consequences. And I remember getting to um, my sister's town where she lived and I, um, I went into, I thought, well, I'm going round, so I might as I'll, I'll go into the little mini M&S shop and buy something just, you know, as a, as a, you know, gift or whatever. Um, and I went in and I, then I went to pay for it. And I just, I, honestly, I couldn't remember my pin, Oliver. I was so, and this was pre-contactless, right? Or nobody was doing contactless then. This was, you know, your pin, you knew your pin. Um, and I couldn't remember my pin, so that was a complete disaster. And then I remember going to get the bus up to my sister and... I was just like, Jesus, if they ask for exact, if this is one of these exact fare jobbies, oh God, anyway. So I gave up on the bus because I was like, I can't deal with exact fare. Like I was just so a, 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 a tough spot. I ended up in a taxi and I just said, look, I haven't got any money, but my sister will sort us out at the other end. So the taxi took me to hers. And then I just remember being um, like on a roller coaster, elation followed by mad depression, elation, depression with her. 
And my sister said to me, you need to see something. Like, this is not good. So I, I texted my DCI again and said, look, I really need to like speak to someone. And he came back to me a little bit later and gave me the number to call. And I called this number and it was the sort of crisis line for the Met Police. Shame nobody had given me that beforehand. But hey, anyway, so I so I sort of 20, I don't know how many, 24 plus hours later, I'm, I'm on the phone to the crisis line and I go, hello. And they're like, yeah, hello. And I'm like, yeah, um, I've been I've been shot at yesterday and I'm all messed up and she says why are you calling us and I was like what do you mean why am I calling you and she goes no, no no I don't mean why are you calling us I mean why are you having to call us we should have been told and I was like well I don't I said I haven't got time for that I don't you know at this point I just want to talk to someone um, and so she took a bit of a like what went on and she said oh someone will get back to you within like half an hour and then half an hour I get a call back and I sort of spoke to this woman and um, said, uh, sort of relayed in even more, you know, sort of detail probably than I have now um, what had gone on. And she, she gave these magical words at the end. She literally, these words just completely lifted me, which was everything you've told me is completely normal. And that's the most important words that you can hear in that situation. I, I feel in terms of giving you a level of reassurance that it is a normal they are normal feelings that you're going through that you're not there's that there are not massive issues that these are normal experiences what you're going through you know and and it gives you that sense of reassurance that everything is 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 okay in the sense of what you're going through yeah and and i think as i say all of those emotions you know i think because trauma's thrown around a lot as a word and i don't know some people are traumatized by like fairly small things seemingly nowadays I think where where people are genuinely, as it were, sort of traumatised, the emotions experienced are so different. This is my experience, at least. They're so different to, I don't know, anything else I'd ever sort of gone through, that they're bloody terrifying and scary. And for me, yeah, the magic of those words that that bought me, that bought me probably seventy two hours of of relative, um, you know, sort of calm peace as it were um thank god you know um and so for me that whole incident just you know sealed the deal uh more than it already perhaps had been of clearly things are not you know this this clearly is not sustainable if i keep on keeping on on this trajectory where does it all go and so um with a very heavy heart, I I found myself um, yeah feeling the need to to come away from it. On on reflection of not the incident but post incident support, what's the what's the what's the ideal support that you would have liked to have received? What do you think would have been an appropriate level of support? Because from listening to your reflections and recall of 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 the post incident debrief that you did or didn't get, and the recognition from a trojan officer that look after that guy he's gonna eat he's gonna need our support it, it it doesn't sound like it was there in any way shape or form and but what do you think an ideal situation would have been for you to feel at ease with what had happened to to the level that you could have done at least yeah i mean i i sort of think had the process i mean i again it's hard to know when the process didn't seem to work or definitely didn't work assuming there was a process but i do feel as though essentially all I needed to do was to be able to have a either a chat with someone who could 
based on what I was going through, say those magic words to me. Or at least make clear that if in the coming you know, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, um, if I feel any of X, Y, Z things, then A, they're completely normal. B, this is how you can talk to someone. Um, and none of those things... You know, none of those things were there for that, for me, certainly for that 24-hour sort of post-incident thing. It, it, you know, it took a lot of hard yards, it felt like, to get to that. And I think the fact that the, the crisis line people said, like, why, you shouldn't be phoning us. I mean, it, so it speaks to the fact that someone somewhere clearly dropped a ball. Um, and again, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not... I'm not about wanting to sort of point fingers as to who that might have been or any of that sort of stuff. But the fact that that ball got dropped, yeah, I, uh, a real shame. And 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 so, I don't know, I'm, I'm always a bit sceptical when, um, you know, a lot of talk about trauma and trauma-informed and this, that and the other and uh, so on. I think, how is it surviving contact with reality? Um and so, you know, just as just as obviously in the previous podcast, people have talked about exit interviews and stuff like that for people leaving the service. What sort of, you know, what sort of follow up is there for people who've gone through something like I did um, to find out, like, did they feel supported? Did the process work for them? And, and maybe that stuff is happening out there. Maybe it is. Um, and maybe I just had a very, you know, isolated incident. In, but I, I fear that others suffer similarly. And for for me i th- i suppose we'll, and we'll we'll move on after this last piece i just wanted to put out there is is that often i think as cops and law enforcement we get i think sometimes too tied up in the policy and procedure and forget the human element you know which you know in that scenario if i had been the supervisor the sergeant the inspector which which is where i believe the responsibility lies is it's to say this is not an this is not an appropriate time to be interviewing this young officer. He's just gone through what we would describe as a very acute incident, which has really challenged him mentally. We need to go out. We need to just go and have a meal or do something which is totally unpolice related. Sit down, have a debrief, have a chat, talk it through, and then tomorrow morning, when he or she has woken up and they're fresh and they've had a chance to just wind down because it is a very stressful situation they will be in a proper position to speak to you. They haven't killed anyone. They haven't discharged a firearm. They haven't done anything where we're investigating them. They have been the victim to ultimately what is an attempted murder. Somebody has pointed a gun in their direction and pulled the trigger with the intent of causing some significant hurt. So I, for, for me, that's where I feel the responsibility lies, is frontline managers having the courage to... Um, to stand up for their troops and say, listen, I think we can do this tomorrow morning rather than doing this right now, putting someone into a room by themselves with all these thoughts running through their heads at a million miles an hour. But uh, but, but again, I, I, I get it and I, and I understand the operational requirements and the need to capture stories whilst they're fresh in one's memory. I get all that, but I think sometimes we've got to put humans before policy and procedure that's my view. Yeah, and I, th- I think the, the final thought on it from me, I suppose, is like I think... You know, and and you know, maybe some of the people around at the time might listen to this podcast. And I suppose I'm just conscious. You know, it's impossible to capture everything um, that went on in that time. And so, you know, I just don't want anyone coming away feeling um, hurt or upset from anything I've said or anything we've discussed about it. Because um, 
certainly I don't hold it, you know, I've, I've worked through it all. I don't hold any grudges around anything on that front. And I think people did the best they could. It, it fell short. Um, and there are learnings from that. And, and certainly again, like in the, in the, in the year after I'd left, um, you know, 2017, a, a, a terrible year for all sorts of, um, you know, sort of events, shall we say in London, uh, happening and impacting on officers. And certainly what I heard, you know, through the grapevine was that it was a bit better, um, in 2017 for people. But I also know that 2017 took a real toll on people too, um, and so I think there's there's much more to do, much more to but do. I, I, yeah, and I suppose the hope is not, and I totally agree with that point, that, you know, these aren't points of criticism, they're points of learning, so that if, you know, a sergeant, inspector, or a superintendent even hears this and goes, well, that was a very yucky experience, and they don't often get to hear about the experiences that we go through, although I, I know that your experiences and, and what you went through did become somewhat a little bit public because there was you know you've written books you you have been in the media you've spoken openly about your views on law enforcement and the justice system and so so there is a bit out there but it's important that people listen to this and have something that they can take away from it and go if I'm ever in a situation where one of my colleagues goes through this I know or I'd like to think I know better that they're going to need my help more than I probably think they do and I think that's the, that's the most important thing. But let's so let's let's I say crack on in terms of your departure from the Met in 2016. You spent the next three years in I'm going to I'm going to say in sort of the policy arena um, and head of criminal justice um, at the Centre for Social Justice. Um, but I want to leapfrog all of that and then look at this revisiting of policing in 2019 when you went into. Thames Valley Police as a direct entry inspector and the direct entry program for those listeners that are outside of the UK was a system that British Policing and the College of Policing came up with at the ranks of inspector and superintendent and in essence it's looking at the skills and the capabilities of individuals in other industries outside of policing whether it be HR whether it be you know a senior manager within Sainsbury's or working in working in the NHS in managerial roles where they could transition into policing at managerial roles and help with more of the strategic leadership because they already had the skills and the ability. So it was just about training them to better understand law, legislation, policy and procedure. And because they already had that significant managerial experience, it's then thrusting them in to those senior roles to help probably provide a higher level of, of guidance and supervision. And it's And it's been met with mixed feedback and reaction. It's temporarily paused you and i have spoken about it a lot um in our in our professional lives and outside of the podcast we do regularly um but let's so you wanted obviously you still had the bug for policing and in 2019 moved back into the arena yeah so i um so when i when i left in 2016 i i i to be totally honest oliver i never thought i'd go back i thought it was like right i'm done you know i'm i'm enough of the lightning rod i'm done um but in the years since um obviously ended up with the old bailey and you know convictions and guilty pleas and sentencing of of, of the chap from the job we've just talked about um and I probably, like many victims of sort of serious crime, as it were, um, didn't really, um, you know, I sort of hoped for some sort of catharsis from it and it just didn't really come. It was it was all a bit sort of anticlimactic in, in some ways. Um, and I was also realising I needed to talk to someone about 
um what had sort of happened and so i sort of um reached out to the very excellent i have to say um police firearm officers association the pfoa um because i felt like i want to talk to someone about what's happened because i need a bit of help and uh I don't really trust my GP. I don't really trust the sort of NHS to sort of really get it. Um, and I thought, who do I trust? And I'd had a bit of contact with the PFOA um, after I'd left. And so I asked them, like, you know, who, who's on your books that might be able to sort of, um, you know, professionally speaking, you know, help me work through some stuff. And um, they did and I did. Um, and that got me sort of... Um, I don't know. We we I thought in you know not to go into too much, but I th I thought we'd end up talking lots about what had happened with the shooting and all this sort of stuff. In fact, we ended up talking about everything else, and this is where the whole context and that's why I made it the point earlier. I think about support networks and various things. And suffice to say, I basically put all that sort of stuff back together, and I was enjoying my work um, on the policy stuff, but. I sort of got everything back where I wanted it to be in terms of my life. And the only piece of the jigsaw that was missing that fell out of place was I bloody left the police and I bloody loved the police. Right. I would dealt with all the irrational stuff, the trauma stuff that had emerged and I wanted back in. And, you know, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't go back in as a, as a, as a PC again. I, I you know, I would got a mortgage for one thing at this point that I just couldn't service if I was to go back as a, as a PC. And also, I sort of thought, you know what, like, I live out of London now, I want to um, maybe try a different force. So Thames Valley Police, where I'd grown up, I thought, you know, Thames Valley's good. Um, and they were taking part in the direct entry. And so I, I threw my hat in and I, I threw it in. At the time I threw my hat in, I sort of threw it in primarily from a kind of, I just, I feel like I want to go back. I'm not sure if I do yet, because it's all still a bit fresh. But if I don't throw in on this, given the lead times of like, you know, takes a year for them to go through it all. Um, by the time I might want to start doing it again, I might have blooming well, you know, they might have shut the blooming thing down or paused it as, as it's turned out they've done. Um, and so thank God I put in. And then the more and more I sort of went through all the process of it all and stuff, the more and more I, I realised I was doing the right thing. I really wanted to get back in. And um, fortunately, you know, and very much, I think, to Thames Valley's credit, they um, they wanted me to, uh, which is always nice. Um, and uh, and I remember the final hurdle was, uh, I think, an interview with the, the deputy chief constable soon to be, if not already, the, the now chief constable, Jason Hogg. And um, it was all presented as, oh, it's just an informal chat or something was, was I think, what we were told. And there's no, you know, it's not an interview. And anyway, it was it was a bit more sort of formal than, <laughs> you know, one might have uh, based on what they'd said. But anyway, suffice to say, I remember waiting on the platform at um, uh, Oxford Parkway Station, having just done this interview, thinking, God, if I don't get this, I'm going to be devastated. What am I going to do with my life? Um and the phone rang so probably 10 15 minutes after the interview the phone rang yeah rory you're in you know look forward to it sort of thing um amazing and it was amazing and i was just like boom the jigsaw is back making sense and so um just felt huge like privilege if you will at having had that opportunity to go back into policing and to not just go back into policing but to to obviously be part of a program that um, would see me uh, at the conclusion of two years or thereabouts um, running a, a team um, and and doing the best I could to obviously support and enable that team to to do the best they can at the job they can do. Um, so I, I was, yeah, cloud nine. I'd um, personal life too. I'd, I'd sort of met a wonderful woman, now wife. Uh, 
So, you know, life was amazing, um, to be totally honest. And I just couldn't wait to get started. And I, I told myself, here we go again, another set of police training. I sort of worry that I'm probably the most the most sort of foundational trained person in in the uk when it comes to i don't know if anyone's joined and left as much as me but anyway so so i sort of said i just need to get through the first 10 weeks of this you know direct entry thing learn the theft act for the millionth time um (laughs) just bite my tongue just get through it and and just look forward to it and 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 so i did and you know some great people on the program to be totally honest you know um the, the caliber of people I do think and you know there's there may always be exceptions but broadly speaking I do think direct entry the cal is the, the caliber of people is not is not the problem uh you know that then there may be exceptions to that I, you know I, I, I can't speak for everyone but broadly speaking I, w- I would say the caliber of people coming through the direct entry is is the right caliber I think there's a lot of room for improvement I sort of hope that with the pause, there is some proper um, thought going on as to how this uh, could be made to work better, um, but that's probably a whole other, whole other podcast. But look, I, I loved it. I got posted to Oxford, where obviously I'd done my PPE degree however many years previously, um, and uh, got posted with um, the, the the team, an amazing team, Team Five up at Cowley, um, and yeah, had a. Oh well, I thought this was the start of my career. I'd 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 high hopes of being in terms of value for quite a while. Um, well, then that that wasn't to well. Be. Yeah. So then that's <laughs> the, the, then this is the, the the great transition and one that um, I know I would be incredibly proud if the door came knocking my way in terms of the experiences that you now gained. So November twenty twenty, phone ring, email come in. You'll have to give us a bit of insight to that. But you leave. Thames Valley Police, November 2020, after doing a year and one month, as you point out, um, you'd spent rotations through both police constable and police sergeant positions on emergency response, and you'd, you know, had started and passing your inspector's exams ready for that next transition. But you move on and become a special advisor on justice and homes of home affairs at, at number 10 Downing Street, working in one of the most fascinating buildings in London, where... Um, it really is, you know, rubber meets the road in terms of policy decision making and the functioning of of governance for our country under the under the stewardship of the prime minister, which at the time, uh, whilst you were there, was 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 Boris Johnson. Well, so here he comes, Boris Johnson. Uh, perhaps the moment of his life. The uh, prime minister's car going into the gates of Buckingham Palace ahead of a private audience with the Queen. Big crowds now actually gathered here outside Buckingham Palace. So to see the arrival there. of the United Kingdom's 14th Prime Minister. You can hear them coming. So um, tell us about that. It's a fascinating transition. Yeah, it was um, and, and completely, sort of completely unexpected. You know, it, back in, back before I'd left to join Thames Valley, um, you know, I was relatively pleased with the work I'd done on policy, you know, helping make sure we were going to get more cops, helping make sure we were going to get more prison places and so on, and and more investment for the system. Um, the, uh, you know, and, and then Boris came in and he appointed his team and stuff. And so, if anything, that was the moment where logically maybe um, it, it might have been less unexpected to have had a, had a phone call. Um, were you a Boris supporter? Were you, a, were you a, a fan of his in terms of what he'd done as mayor of London? Um, he's, he's a a passionate advocate of policing. Uh, he had a very good relationship with um, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, now Lord Hogan Howe. So he had a very good policing ethos. 
Yeah, and and, and look, I I mean one of the, I would I would never have taken the job if if it had been to sort of be part of a uh, an administration that um wasn't sort of pro police if you will. Um and I don't say that in the kind of the police can do no wrong and oh we must never criticize them type sense. I just mean it in the sense of, you know, put it this way, had 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 Theresa May phone me up in I don't know whenever um to say, "Oh, do you want to come and be part of, you know, I don't know, taking 20,000 cops out?" The answer would have been no thanks. Um I don't think you should be doing that. Um so so for me, yeah, I mean, I, he's got charisma. He's a very bright man. Um, like anyone, we all have our flaws. Of course we do. Um, but certainly I, I went into it thinking to myself, you know, there's a manifesto there with some strong commitments. I've never heard, I've, I've never really felt much at odds with certainly his positions on, you know, policing and crime type stuff. He, you know, he, he really buys into, believes in, you know, the hotspot stuff, the 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 sort of the the broken windows approach you know all of that stuff which is completely up my street um and and i suppose similarly too we had um you know a home secretary who had always you know even you know on the back benches had always been very clear in her position around crime and and policing and so you know i i sort of felt like actually you know this is this is an opportunity um but it wasn't it wasn't a choice i sort of rushed rushed to if anything my own instinct was god i've worked bloody hard and been bloody fortunate to get uh back into policing on this direct entry thing if i leave now my opportunity to resume or return is going to be potentially virtually in reality probably non-existent um and so my initial honestly oliver my initial reaction was like mm, you know I'm, I'm not you know, I'm I'm out of London. I'm in Thames Valley. I've got an inspector's exam. I've you know I'm I'm doing all this and and then I so initially there was a lot of hesitation, if you will, on my part to be totally honest. Um, and then I just had sleepless nights, thinking, you know, if I don't do this, who might? If I don't um, if I don't answer this call, you know, and and I did. I as much as I saw it as serving the prime minister, I also saw it um, in much the same way as being a police officer. I saw it as serving the public. Um, and, you know, obviously there's an awful lot of, um, debate and discussion around policing and crime. There's an awful lot of politics around that, you know, whether it's the identity politics stuff, whether it's the woke, anti-woke, all of that sort of stuff, whether, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff going on. And I just thought to myself, you know, there aren't many voices, to be totally honest. There aren't many voices, um, out there or aren't, aren't enough voices out there uh arguing for what the public sort of want and so yeah i i i that's ultimately the the basis on which i went in i thought you know what in essence i'm prepared to sacrifice sacrifice a potential future in policing in order to try and do some good um in in the enormous like privileged opportunity of of being in number 10 in the policy unit um boy what a kind of learning curve it is to go into government having never been in government having been around government having been you know in the policy world think tank world you know um to then go into government and see the real sort of uh, you know the beast of it itself uh the bureaucracy the processes um you know it confirmed a lot of my own sort of pre-existing views as to the problems with government the problems with the civil service and so on um goes without saying obviously there were there were some incredible people in the civil service that I had the great opportunity and pleasure to work with and alongside um 
but it was it was a hard it was hard yards for sure um it's a lot easier to stop stuff certainly this is how it felt it felt a lot easier to stop stuff than to get stuff started um and obviously you know you've you know for me you have the home office you've got ministry of justice i mean they're two enormous departments with all sorts of hot potato issues on any given day and so um if only i'd had two years purely working on uh you know one aspect of policing and crime or criminal justice and you know i i feel um it would have been a lot easier but it's a it's it was a it was a crazy job i think anyone who's done that role as the sort of justice home affairs kind of special advisor or indeed on the civil service side um covering that brief they know it's tough they know it's hard they know it's vast um and obviously the whole um you know the whole ongoing thing of immigration that's been a long running issue for for decades right so so that justice and home affairs brief really does cover an awful lot um would i would i if i could you know and i've often thought to myself since leaving number 10 i've often thought you know should was that the right thing was it not the right thing um i'm not one generally to sort of look back and have regrets and you know i, I suppose i'm only sorry that um i couldn't uh sort of resume my um my policing thing because i'd have loved to have done that and and so hence i'm doing something else yeah so because the the, the portfolios that you were sitting in as a special advisor uh, inside number 10 when we look at election cycles and when we come up to elections uh, where governments battle it out to to get the keys to number 10 within those top three to five policy areas which are often ones of great interest to the public and to constituents is immigration uh, has been for a number of years now in terms of being able to control um, the right of passage into the country uh, we have a, a quite clearly an issue in the UK at the moment in terms of the vulnerability of our borders I think it's the job of governments number one priority is to keep our borders secure and to ensure the people we know who the people are that are coming across into our borders because the second part of their responsibility which I think is, is gravely important is is keeping the people that reside in any particular country safe and providing them with a safe and secure environment for people to to live, do business and be successful, etc, etc. So you spend a lot of your time in those policy areas and in government continually, it would appear to me from from the outside, and having some experience in, in spending time with you, putting out spot fires continually because issues get raised by oppositions they get raised by local mps you know so you're continually trying to navigate front page stories and to try and come up with and, and try to understand the complexity of some of the greatest challenges that do exist um around that portfolio so it, it must have been a very intense environment in terms of continually battling fires on really really important areas of policy yeah and i think that's why that's why i think it's from my experience at least and certainly i think from some others it's easier to stop stuff than start stuff because stopping something takes um you know comparatively little effort in a sense you know you you can kind of stop something in a day or two starting something you know you can start something but then actually you need to then shepherd that stuff on any you know anyone I don't know anyone doing like change management or transformation or any of these sorts of things. You know, th th they know that it's it's not like oh, you say some. You know, it's well, we come back to command. Actually, we come back to command. It's not just, it's not just you can't just order something and think oh, that's done now. Um, you know, you've got to follow up, right? You've got to have relentless kind of follow up. And so, 
your uh, your your capacity when you have the sort of reactive stuff just endlessly and very unpredictably predictably unpredictable in a sense um when you when you have that sort of bucket filling up daily with stuff like that your capacity to kind of really drive anything else forward is 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 much diminished and when you think about government and certainly i i've done quite a bit of thinking about it since um you know it's a very thin it's a very thin kind of political layer on um on government right like you have ministers secretaries of state prime minister and then obviously for some of those ministers and secretaries of state and the prime minister you obviously have special advisors who are you know sort of political appointees as it were um and that's actually not a huge number of people when you compare that with the enormity of the um of the of the system right the enormity of the civil service the enormity of operational partners and also when you compare it with the enormity of the of the various special interest groups and campaign groups and activists and others on the outside um and so what you sort of what you sort of realize is you know you really do just have to try to pick your battles and of course you're also sort of bound obviously by the manifesto too and you're sort of bound by obviously politically what is possible within again something that you know it'd be easy for listeners to sort of assume oh well if you were in number 10 couldn't you just xyz well you know if only uh, you know if if only um but of course you know you've got secretaries of state who have their views and quite rightly so they're elected and they're, and they're part of the cabinet that's you know their that's their sort of piece and you've got ministers and you've got backbenches and so the political complexity not least in the aftermath of obviously brexit um and you know obviously we've seen continue to see that sort of instability or that sort of um political challenge haven't we with obviously the short-lived Liz Truss regime too. So, so I suppose for me anyway, the the, the real eye opener was just how politically complex it is, and how um, just capacity-wise, everyone everyone is sort of at capacity, if not over. Um, which to me, I suppose, I end up. Where do I end up? Well, I end up probably thinking to myself, you know, we should maybe have. I'm I'm open to ideas of having a more American-style system where you actually have a slightly sort of more, you know voluminous layer of um political appointees to get stuff done drive stuff forward um but i'm also one who who sees the power of a manifesto um i think the country's crying out for um renewed commitments on crime policing criminal justice um to name but a few um and so i think the next set of manifestos for the next general election i think are um honestly i think they're critical to um achieving a a safer uk frankly which has has led you outside of number 10 um since leaving establishing the public safety foundation which obviously you head up and and is is the driving force in terms of continuing to have that positive debate around the importance of law and order and what does that mean more contextually in, in you know because we're all very good at talking about it but it's very important that we hold people to account in terms of how they they execute the role you know you've got your pccs which um you know i i must admit i'm not overly au fait with and, and seems to be an extra layer of governance which appears to be slightly unnecessary but that's just my own personal view 
Um, but but equally, you know, they do hold the the chief constables within their areas to account, which one could say is a is a positive and, and is a level of governance which is required. So there's arguments, I think, in both directions. But the the Public Safety Foundation, what are you hoping to achieve? Yeah. So. Um... So it's a new non-profit. Um, the goal really is to help make the UK the safest place to live, to work and to raise a family. Um, and we're basically going to be championing the fight against crime and disorder because there's an awful lot of people who are championing the opposite of that. Um, and we're going to do our best to speak up for the uh, law-abiding majority. Um, and I suppose the the products if you will over time there'll obviously be reports and stuff that any sort of campaigning type body would do but we're also looking to sort of reboot um some of the interactions between the public and the police through some novel use of technology um and all of it sort of driving towards um making the uk a safer place so no 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 good will come from the very very uh divisive rhetoric and the divisive um debates we see uh because at the moment that then they're sort of i mean look i think i don't know if you saw the neil basu interview with um with danny shaw but you know he sort of he, he he sort of spoke about how he sort of thinks that police chiefs just to pick one cohort within policing he thinks police chiefs seem to fall into three different buckets well you know policing then is clearly uh fragmented in a sense um and i suppose my view is we don't have enough uh sort of rational critical debate um i'd for instance i'd quite like us to actually um get to a place where we can talk about what you know what some of the things are that alienate the public without people rushing to assume that even talking about or questioning these things is 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 i don't know transphobic or homophobic or racist or whatever it might be so for instance i think the race action plan i think um i think a sizable proportion of the public if they read it would be like oh my goodness what is this why are the police buying into this ideology um, I know other people would read it and go, "There's nothing wrong with any of this." Um, and, and so the fact that the fact that those two kind of like oil and water, those two groups are sort of talking, um, talking in their own almost echo chambers, but there's no sort of middle ground, sort of safe space, if you will, for people to actually debate this stuff, for people to actually thrash out. Well, should should police stations fly flags other than the UK flag, for instance? You know, should 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 a police station fly, I don't know, a Progress Pride flag, a Pride flag, a, a Black Lives Matter flag? Like what, you know, and, and does it matter? Well, I think it does matter what flags the police fly. But it's very hard at the moment to see a way, to see certainly a formal process for like having that conversation with with senior police. Uh, um, I, I was going to say that the, 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 I think the challenges currently as we see them is, is that, to have what could only be described as courageous and, and often difficult conversations around this is I think everybody's got to be in agreement that we're not always going to agree with each other. And that's not a bad thing. It's it's not a bad thing not to have the same view and to have a different view in terms of what you think is right, because that's the basis of the society that we live in. And I think there are certain pockets of society that don't allow others to have an opinion anymore. So we end up 
in my view, to some extent, giving in far too quicker without having difficult conversations about what we think is right and what are the ramifications of taking certain actions. And that's what kind of worries me more so than anything. I, th- I think that's right, Oliver. And I, th- I think um, certainly I'm hoping your podcast series can be part of that. I certainly think um, we need to have these conversations because we see what happens when we don't have the conversations. And I don't know, the, 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 the grooming gang sort of scandal as an example is one, I think, where difficult conversations weren't had. Um, to give an you know to give a, an example of something that you know had a very real world impact of a you know the most sort of horrendous kind for quite a large number of people and it was because people didn't have difficult conversations and I think the the other part of it too is just because and, and I completely agree by the way about the whole disagreeing thing like we need to learn to disagree with each other it's okay to disagree and it doesn't make you a bad person for having a different view and i think that's that's the that's the particular issue i think at the moment is where there's a there's almost a moral judgment attached to you having a different view um and and i think policing you know certain you know i don't know neil basu dave thompson maybe some others have a particular view that policing has somehow been dragged into sort of culture wars i think i think the truth is 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 well i think the truth is that policing is in the middle of the culture kind of wars i think it's it's ended up it's ended up becoming a pitch it's invited players onto the pitch um and you know it might only have invited certain players on and so inevitably the side that weren't invited on are going to have something to say and so for me as i say the foundation part of the foundation's work is going to be about how to create that space that forum for people to have difficult conversations and to know that um it's it's okay to ask some of these questions. It's okay to have uh, views. I mean, to give another example, and I, I don't want to just go on about flags, but I think they're they're visible. I think it's well established that you know people get upset about it. And take police Scotland. I think the chief constable soon to retire, chief constable in Scotland, um, uh, refused to sort of fly certain flags over police stations in Scotland. Quite right, in my view. But the rationale, nobody sort of, you know, 800 word sort of statement about why it's, you know, saying no to flying certain flags. And then sort of 750 of those words is spent sort of trying to point to other things rather than setting out a rationale. And I think, you know, if we don't have those difficult conversations, if we can't articulate reasoning around them because we get shut down before we do or because any attempt to rationalise something that's different is somehow uh, a problem then we're not going to end up in a good place and i do i do worry that at a time where police performance for want of a better term you know in terms of detection rates and stuff is is not great um and when the workforce as well has its own challenges and when trust and confidence for all the reasons you've covered in all the past podcasts is 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 in the place it's at and where the media appetite is where it's at i think if if policing doesn't get much better at having these difficult conversations even internally, but ideally sort of relatively openly too, then um, I, I really worry actually for both the impartiality, which obviously people rightly hold dear, but also just for the, the, the fundamental relationship between the public and the police. 
Um, no, I, I, I think we're in a we're, we're in a tight spot. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And it's to be honest with you, it's a podcast we should explore in itself, really. To be honest with you, with all these difficult challenges which certainly exist within the vocation of policing right across the UK. But um, we've spoken for just over two hours, and it's been a fascinating trip, not only down memory lane for you, but f- for for all of us to better understand the challenges that police officers face when they are placed in very significant and dangerous incidents and what that can actually mean for their mental health and how we cope and deal with and process these issues because I think a lot of the time we don't understand it. I think we take it for granted and again it demonstrates that ordinary people are out there doing extraordinary things day in day out, 365 days of the year. So I think um, in closing, I, I want to thank you ever so much for being so open with us in terms of your own personal experiences and challenges. It's um, incredibly um, kind of you to do so. Um, thank you ever so much for your public service, both in policing and within uh, your important work within Number 10 Downing Street. It's critically important that we have strong governance and incredibly um, clever people making good sound decisions and helping us form policy going forward to keep um, ultimately our the people that live within this great country safe and um we i suppose wish you all the best of luck with the public safety foundation i'm watching it closely we talk regularly offline and uh you know we have many more discussions to come so thank you ever so much for taking part in the podcast no thank you oliver and just thank you for the podcast i think it's a it's a brilliant addition i've certainly enjoyed a lot of the episodes and I suppose at a time where it's easy to be sort of downbeat or slightly pessimistic about certain things, I I, I do think, um, you know, with the right amount of courage from people, we can definitely get to that uh, optimistic place where we can and should be. And, you know, I just, you know, a thank you really also to any of the listeners who are um, serving police officers or prison officers or anyone else in the criminal justice system who, who works hard to keep us safe. Thank you for what you do. No, brilliant. Thanks very much. I appreciate it again. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.